Good morning, everybody. Sorry about the delay. We were running into some some issues, but uh, we're gonna we got it all resolved. And uh, I do have Amy, our Dr. Baker, on the line. I'll bring her here in a, in, in a second. But first things first, I have to do my normal disclaimers and stuff. Uh, welcome to the Break the Cycle with DSD podcast show. I'm your host, Dwayne. I am not a therapist. I'm an individual like you who's been through a tough experiences and have come up with some tips and techniques that I share with you to help you get your life back, minimize the damage, strengthen relationship with your kids, and get things back on track. Remember that I only a licensed professional therapist in a clinical environment can diagnose somebody with a personality disorder. So be careful getting your degree on the internet and then going around and telling everyone that you've figured out what your ex is and that you're throwing a diagnosis around. That will inevitably blow up in your face and I'm pretty sure that our guest today will probably reinforce that idea. Uh, if you want to get the text notification, you can uh, do that by, you know what, never mind. <laughs> I hit the wrong button. We're going to just jump into this because I know we lost a few minutes. So who I have with us today is Dr. Amy Baker, who has a PhD in childhood development, is the author and co-author of eight books and over 120 articles. She's also a nationally recognized uh, expert in parental alienation, and I am really excited to introduce her today. So, Dr. Baker, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Happy to be here. We, I, I'm still, the fact that we got it to work, I'm so happy. Yeah. It was a, this almost turned into a phone interview. So um, <laughs> let me just scroll around here for a second. So first thing I wanted to just ask, and I, and I know you've probably gone through this before, but for, you know, probably the, the 2% of my audience who's never heard of you, because most people have, what's your background and how did you become an expert in parental alienation in this whole category of uh, uh, this topic? Well, uh, you know, I could trace it all the, all the way back to being a teenager and reading a book uh, called Somewhere a Child is Crying and really being almost like struck by lightning with this idea that I wanted to do something somehow to protect children. And eventually that led to getting a PhD at Teachers College um, in the field of human development. And my specialization was parent-child relationships. And ever since then, everything I've done has basically been um, focused on helping strengthen parent-child relationships and working on various aspects of um, healthy relationships and abusive relationships. So um, I do have a specialization in parental alienation at this point, because I've done a lot of thinking about it, but I also more generally work in the field of child welfare and um, helping do research in lots of different subspecialties. Parental alienation is just one of them. No, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're doing it because it's, it's such a insidious experience that people go through and most people don't understand it. And whenever you're on, whenever you're on the side of it, that's dealing with it and, and you're screaming to people like, look at what's going on. And they look at you like you're nuts. It's nice to have somebody who, can explain it in a logical and methodical way to bring some clarity to it. So thank you so much for what you do. I really appreciate it. And you're welcome. so the one other thing I wanted to ask, and, and, I, and I know you have a whole book on this, but is there really a way to co-parent with the toxic ex or is it hopeless? Well, um, I have to say the publisher sort of foisted that name on me. I wanted to call the book something like, you know, Parenting Under Fire or something. Oh, that's... Maybe it wasn't a great title, but I'm not really a fan, just to build on something you said in the introduction, I'm not a fan of people labeling each other. Yeah. I think the word toxic is overused. And certainly if you're a targeted parent, don't let your kids see that you're reading that book because they're going to get mad at you. Like, oh, you, you know, if you're a mom, the kid's going to say, oh, mommy, you think daddy's toxic? I mean, that's not going to help. I actually think just the title of the book can be problematic. Um, but going back to the bigger question, can you co-parent? You know, there's different models of co-parenting. The ideal is, you know, really where the parents work together in a kind of seamless united front and right. have really shared values and expectations for the kids and they support each other's rules and regulations and authority. Obviously in alienation situations, that's not what's happening. Uh, there is parallel parenting or parallel sort of co-parenting where each parent has, uh, you know, they're the king or queen of their domain and they yeah. really don't have an expectation that the other parent's going to do it the same. The point is the book is really about how to parent your child when the other parent is undermining you. 
Um, that that is the intention of the book. It's not really about how to write emails to your you know to your ex when they're doing something you don't like. There's there is something to be said for um, not contributing to your ex's um, upset with you. And I think that sometimes targeted parents, because they're reactive, yeah. can make things worse. But the book really is about how to protect your relationship with your child. I think that's the key. I mean, that's often what I talk with my audience about is that you got to shift the focus away from from focusing on what the ex is doing and focus on you and your relationship with the kids. And just to dovetail, I absolutely understand why your 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 editor or your, the publisher push you to do that because it grabs attention, you know, because it's like, Oh my God, that's exactly what I'm doing. I mean, that's like, I just want to dovetail one more thing, like the overuse of terms like toxic or narcissistic or narcissism. I mean, my whole channel has that title in there, but that's what people search on. Right. So it's like, you got to get them in the door to, uh, <laughs> to do it. So the next thing I wanted to ask you, and this kind of dovetails with what you just said, is, okay, so if you're in a situation and you find you're, you're or at least you suspect, suspect you're being alienated, what are some immediate things that you can do right now to help yourself and your children deal with this situation? Well, there's a lot. I mean, I could, I could, <laughs> I could write a book about that. I mean, the first thing is you do need to look at yourself. Am I doing something that is threatening my ex? Am I doing something that's uh, inducing them to engage in behaviors that I now call alienation. So it always helps to start by looking at yourself and also to look at yourself as a parent. You know, a lot of times it's easier to think that the other parent is engineering your child's upset with you than to say, gee, maybe that was inartful or hurtful the way that I did whatever I did with my child. So always start by looking at yourself. Am I using the best parenting strategies Am I being sensitive to my child? That doesn't mean giving your child everything they want. That's not possible or right. good. Um, but there are ways to interact with kids that are kinder, more sympathetic, more respectful. And so I do in my coaching, I do focus a lot on that. Even if the other parent is engaging in alienation, you need to you know, clean up your side of the street, both because it will make a difference in your relationship with your kid but also it makes it easier for the legal and mental health professionals to see what the problem is. Um, I would say in terms of actual parenting, the big trap that targeted parents fall into is feeling like they have to explain to the child why the child's wrong for being mad at them. So like a typical example is the kid says to the parent, you know, daddy, you know, you're so mean, I hate you, you stole my college money. And that's my favorite example because it's so ubiquitous. Um, even for kids who don't know what college is and they don't even know what money is, they still know, you know, you're bad because you stole my college money. Right. And the typical targeted parent falls into this thought process, which is, you know, my kid believes X, you know, in this case, X is I stole their money, but it could be daddy, you beat me when I was a baby, mommy, you're so mean, you know, it doesn't matter, whatever it is. The parent thinks, oh, my kid's mad at me because my kid believes X. X is a lie. So all I need to do is explain to my child, no, no, I didn't steal your college money. And the kid won't be mad at me anymore. And, and that yeah. doesn't work. In fact, it actually makes things worse. But then the targeted parent thinks, oh, so Amy, what you're saying is that if my kid believes I hurt them, I have to apologize and say I did it even though I didn't. And no, I'm definitely not saying that. And that's the problem for a lot of targeted parents. They, they think they only have two choices. You know, on the one hand, you argue with the child and say, no, you're, how could you think I would do that to you? Or they think, well, if you think I did it, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll just apologize for anything you think I did that hurt you. And neither of those strategies works. And it's all my coaching and writing is about finding a way to speak to the child's heart from your heart that undoes the big lie, which is that you're unsafe, unloving, and unavailable mm -hmm. in a way that doesn't inadvertently reinforce the lie that you're unsafe, unloving, and unavailable. In other words, if your child comes to you and says, you know, how dare you steal my college money? And you respond with, who told you that? Why would you say that? Don't you know I would never do that? Here, you want to see the piece of paper? Here's your money. If you respond to your child like that, your child 
probably won't believe you, but also will feel badly. Like, gee, that didn't feel good. Dad just yelled at me or mom just yelled at me, you know, and made me feel stupid. So when we correct the little lie, you know, mm-hmm. you can't do it in a way that reinforces the bigger lie that you don't love your child. So figuring out how to respond to your child's criticisms and complaints and accusations in a way that is safe, loving, and available is really, in my opinion, like where all the action is at. You know, I, 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 I kind of laughed on that because I, as you were saying that, I'm like, oh my God, I've, I've had that conversation with my kids earlier when I was making a lot more mistakes and I could see that it was not helping. But I, I've, I've implemented a lot of what you've talked about and it's amazing how it doesn't make it a hundred percent, you know, like next day better, but it, over time, it really, you do start to see results on that. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I say to parents is, you know, I mean, it's sort of a riddle in a way it's not, not everybody laughs, but it's like, how do you know when a relationship is over? And the answer is when the other person stops complaining, Ooh. which is sort of funny, but it's also true, right? If you, You know, imagine like you're dating somebody and you go out on three dates and you're sort of like, "Mm, it's not working. I'm not really interested in this person. And then the other person's like, well, why? And just explain to me, what did I do wrong? And I want to understand. You're done. You don't want to go through it anymore, right? So to me, because you you don't want to invest energy or give somebody false hope, right? So you're like, nope, it's done. I'm not even returning their phone calls. So when your child comes to you with a complaint, even if it's outrageous, right? You know, the most outrageous thing you can think of. It's still a good thing that the child is bringing the complaint to you because it's an opportunity to clear the air. And it's an opportunity for your child to experience you in the moment as safe, loving, and available. And you can't do that if you get mad at your child. And the other thing I say is if if you inadvertently hurt your child's feelings or your child thinks you hurt their feelings, who do you want the child to go to? Oh, yeah. The other parent or to you? Right? Well, you don't want the parent, the parent, the other parent to have the first crack at responding to the child's complaint because, right, if they're an alienator, they're just going to fan the flames. Right, right. Right. Well, you know, mommy did that because she's bad and doesn't love you, right? You don't want your kid processing their complaints with the other parent. You want the child processing the complaints with you, right? Yeah. So then the question is, if you want the child to bring their complaints, their hurt feelings, their concerns, their questions, their accusations to you, how do you increase the likelihood that they will do that? And the way you do that is by making them feel good about the experience. If you tell somebody, how dare you think that that's ridiculous, you're basically saying to the child, you're stupid. And is the child going to want to come back again the next time they have a question or concern or complaint? No, because nobody wants to be made to feel stupid. So we have to positively reinforce it. We have to praise the child when they bring a complaint to you. And that's counterintuitive. It is. Because targeted parents think, why do I want my kid to be happy they're complaining to me? I, I don't want any more complaints. They're complaining all the time. But... That's what makes this so hard. What would make sense sort of in a normal situation doesn't make sense in alienation. We want to really encourage and reinforce the kids bringing something negative to you about you because that's how you can process it. I encourage parents to think of a complaint as a gift. It's in a box with a beautiful bow. You should be like really grateful. (laughs) It's hard though, right? Yeah, and what what I'll say is like, my pattern in the, in the beginning is the kids wouldn't tell me anything. And when they started to share a little bit what was happening in the, in the vortex on the other side, uh, I, it, I mean, it hurt to hear what was going on. But at the same time, I was like, oh, my God, they're finally feeling safe enough to where they can say something. So it was. It was a gift. So this leads into the other. This is a common thing. I'm not, I know you've heard about this one. But why does it seem that a, an alienated parent that the, for with, with an alienated parent, that the child typically sides with the abuser and will throw the other parent under the bus. And this isn't, I mean, for my experience with the channel and, and my community, it doesn't matter whether it's the, it's the, the mom or the dad. If, if you fall on the wrong side of that, 
it's like they they discount the the feelings and and what's going on with one side, like in my situation, to be the dad side, and then anything they can use against you with the other side, they will just embellish it or or you know turn it into a bad thing. Why does that even happen? Right. So, and that is again counterintuitive. We we would think as logical beings that a child would have a preference for the more loving, kind, safe, nurturing parent. Um, but that's actually not true. And so um, that's one of the things that makes it so hard for the legal and mental health professional to do the right thing. If they're starting from the premise, well, kids don't reject a parent for no reason. If they refuse to spend time with mom or dad, whoever the targeted parent is, that parent must have done something. And if the kids are worshiping, you know, and, and, you know, enthralled to this other parent, that parent must be doing a lot right. And that's actually not true in alienation cases. You know, there are some situations where kids do actually reject an abusive parent, but it's not that common. And in fact, it's so uncommon that I wrote a book about it called Bonded to the Abuser. And I looked at all of the different threads of research and clinical observation that supports the idea that when kids are abused by a parent, they actually cling to that parent. They actually are desperate to have that parent's approval. And, uh, you know, there's, it's sort of, there's many, many threads of research, like going back all the way to research that's done with primates, you know, monkey research back from the 1950s and 60s, where this researcher named Harry Harlow created these uh, mechanical mothers to raise these little babies, these little baby monkeys. He separated them from their real mothers and put them with these mechanical mothers who he then could turn into what he called monster mothers, who did horrific things to these little baby monkeys. Nobody nobody gets to do this kind of research anymore because it's yeah. so cruel, but he did it. Um, and what he found is that the babies clung more to their monster mommies than the non-abused babies clung to the non-abusive mommies. So that abusing these little baby monkeys made them actually more clingy, more needy, more in, you know desperate to be nurtured by the mother who was abusing them. That I often that it's so frustrating when you're going through it, right? Because it is counterintuitive. And I've often said, you know, that people should start looking at it in a situation like that, that, that something's wrong. I mean, if, unless there's some horrific, really tangible situation, kids want to want both parents. And if there's something like that happening, they need to look at it differently. I mean, and that way you just explained it. I mean, it just, it really, there it is, right? That's, that's the answer and the causation of why this stuff happens. Um, man, wow. That's kind of mind blowing. So this leads to the next question, which is, does a parent who successfully alienates a child from a fit and loving parent truly love that child? Are they capable of love or, or are they like that, that mechanical fake mom? That's just, you know, not, there's nothing there. Yeah. Here's my answer. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I I haven't done any research with the alienators. It'd be very hard. You know, people always ask me, do they mean to do it? Are they doing it on purpose? You know, we don't know. On some level, I'm not that interested in that um, question. It's a fair question. I know other people are interested. I just, I believe in levels of consciousness that on some level they love their child and on another level they're, they're so warped that they you know, they prioritize punishing the other parent or they convince themselves that the other parent is no good. I don't think we can, I I suspect that there isn't one type of alienator that there are, you know, there are some alienators who are sort of power hungry and they do it from a place of just, you know, wanting to have total control over the child. There are some who are very vulnerable and fragile and can't tolerate being alone. And they just need that child with them because they don't have enough of like a life, an adult life outside of being a parent. Their whole identity is wrapped up in being a parent. So I think that there's probably different ways that people end up being a an alienator underneath all of them is probably 
probably, and now I'm not speaking as a researcher, I'm saying just somebody who's been in this field, probably there is some form of cluster B personality disorder. And I say that because part of what happens in all alienation situations is that the favored parent makes the faulty belief or assumption that the child should or does feel about the other parent the way they do. And that, so it's like, let's say, let's say mom is the alienator, but we know it works both ways. And I'll give examples of dads as alienators, hopefully later, but let's say mom's the alienator, the marriage ends, she devalues the guy, you know, the ex-husband, he's no good, he's stupid, bad, whatever. What the personality disorder does is make it hard for that mother to see that the kids can find value in that relationship, even if she doesn't. So it's, I hate my ex-husband, he's a jerk, everybody thinks he's a jerk, my kids are better off without him. So it's the inability to see that other people have a separate experience. I might not like this guy, he hurt my feelings, he was a crappy husband, whatever, but he still is somebody who's important to my kids. That ability to acknowledge and experience the kids as having a separate perspective than one's own, that's what a person with a certain type of personality disorder cannot do. So that's how personality disorders generally relate to alienation. No, that makes sense. I mean, and I think it just boils back to what you were saying before is you just got to focus on building the best relationship with your kid. You know, stop trying to waste your time figuring the other person out because you're going to drive yourself crazy trying to go down that rabbit hole and just focus on what you can, right? I mean, basically. So I think the the intentionality of the alienator is relevant for treatment. So if I were a therapist, which I'm not, working with a family, I would want to know how conscious is this parent of what they're doing? Are they aware when they say, oh, you're, you know, your mother never loved you, that they're trying to turn the kid against the other parent, or are they not? So I think there's, that's relevant for treatment. It's not relevant for diagnosis, for determining if you have a child who's rejecting right. a parent and you're trying to figure out is this child alienated or not, all you need to pay attention to, you know, there's the five-factor model that we're all talking about now. One of the factors has to do with the behavior of the favored parent. And it's, are they engaging in the 17 primary parental alienation strategies? And there's nothing that says that the parent has to be doing it with the intention of turning the child against the other parent. So if you tell your child, you know, daddy never loved you, or, you know, your mother's a whore and is selfish, it doesn't matter why you're doing that for, to, for determining that the parent is engaging in alienation. Intentionality is taken out of the equation. It is relevant for treatment. If you want to try to help the family, it's helpful to know how, how conscious is the parent of what they're doing. No, that's a, that's, I'm just thinking about what you're saying. That's an excellent point. And, and it's so hard to, I mean, and in a, in a lot of ways, I think even the targeted parent is going to turn around and just by reacting, you're going to fall into some of the same behavior of disparaging the other parent. I mean, it's a really slippery slope and it's just the poor kid stuck in the middle. I mean, they just don't know what to think. So let me move uh on. I, so let me move on to this is an, another aspect of it. And you kind of, well, you kind of hinted on it. It sounded like more on the legal side of it, but, but how do, how does someone get other people like teachers, therapists, you know, doctors, attorneys, judges to really see what's really going on? Because it seems like most people, I've talked to a few attorneys recently and some of them are like, well, you know, parental alienation, it hardly ever happens. No one believes it. And it's like, it, it seems like, a lot of the profession or the legal professionals just flip a switch and click it off. It's like, oh God, parental alienation. Here we go. It's one of these people again. I mean, how do we yeah. get people to see to really understand what's really happening? Well, I think there's two thoughts that come to mind. The first is I often recommend that my clients use the phrase undermining and interfering. 
So you could say, I'm concerned that my ex is undermining my relationship with my child, or I believe my ex is interfering in my relationship. Those are words that everybody pretty much knows what they mean. There's no theory attached to it. There's no, you know, meta construct the way that parental alienation is. Um, it's, it's very relatable. So I would say that might be the better way to talk about it, unless you're going to court and you're making a you know, if your child is, you believe, severely alienated and the treatment that you're seeking from the court, the um, remedy from the court that you're seeking is to be able to go to a parental alienation immersion program, then you really don't have a choice. You have to go to court with the parental alienation argument because you can't ask for a treatment until you've kept that particular specific treatment, a parental alienation immersion program without convincing the court that the problem is parental alienation. So you have to, it's a legal strategy decision based in part on how severely alienated your kids are and what the remedy is. You know, if your kids are, let's say 17 and they're, let's say they're, you believe they're alienated, um, you're probably not gonna go to court. I'm not giving legal advice here. I'm just oh, right, saying, right. Sort of, I'm thinking, scenario, you know, where your kids are old enough, or let's say you don't have enough money, or for whatever reason, yeah. you're not going to court to ask for, you know, family bridges or turning points for families. But there is some reason that you're in court, and you do want to make the case that you think the other parent is contributing to the conflict in your relationship, I would just use undermining and interfering. No, rather than that makes sense. Well, that makes a lot of sense because then you're really focusing on the be the behavioral patterns and you're not falling into this, you know, they're alienating because they're cluster B, you know, blah, 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 blah. And just because it, it's weird, it's, it's like you just said, it's a language thing. You know, you say parental alienation and people click and they think if they have a percent, I mean, if they understand it, then maybe they go, okay, fine. But if not, they're going to look at it and see, you know, not see it correctly but you just switch the terms around and it makes it so much easier for other people to see what's going on. I mean, that's a really great I mean, point. You don't know what somebody else means or you don't know what somebody else thinks when you say parental alienation. Yeah. Good right? point. The term has different meanings to different people. You know, we're trying to codify the terminology in the field and have some shared language that we can all use. But unless you're seeking a parental alienation remedy in court, I don't see the point of using the phrase. So be strategic in how you use that phrase. That is outstanding advice. So I, I want to, I think you kind of hit on this. So I want to ask this next part is does reunification therapy, and I think you were using other terms that maybe were the same thing or the way you're calling it. And is that something that a targeted parent should try? What's your opinion on reunification therapy? So the term has two different meanings. Um, so again, we're trying to codify the language. So um, one version of reunification therapy is what I call in the office reunification therapy, meaning, you know, your child is probably living with the other parent full time. You see your child for an hour a week with a therapist in the office, in that therapist's office. But everything that happens outside is unrelated to the treatment. That sounds like um, it would just like that sounds like destined for failure. Yes, doomed, doomed, <laughs> doomed. to fail, absolutely. Um, and I guess there's two points I want to make. Uh, several. Um, one is it's the most common court-ordered remedy. It's very appealing to judges because it doesn't require transfer of custody. It doesn't really require making the child do anything that onerous. And everything is in the hands of a licensed clinician. So the judge doesn't really have to make any, um, you know, any tough decision. So it's, it's an easy call for the judge to kick the problem down to, uh, you know, down the road to, you know, your friendly neighborhood reunification therapist. <clears throat> the problem is, first of all, anybody can say they do reunification therapy. There's absolutely no certification program. There's no real consensus in the field about what methods are going to work and what to do. Um, I'm not opposed to people doing it, especially because the judge likes it. If you can build into the order 
that it will be tried for three months. And if it doesn't work, then if it's a case of severe alienation, the family gets to go to a parental alienation immersion program, which also is a reunification treatment, but it's an intensive round the clock, 24 hours. I mean, obviously people are sleeping, but right. they're living in the same center as the therapist or they're all like in a hotel together. Oh, wow. Okay. The therapy starts at, you know, breakfast and it's like they're, ex it's experiential. The targeted parent and the child are having opportunities to experience each other in, as in real life, in real time, doing real life activities, you know, going to a restaurant together, going bowling, doing this, doing that. Um, and so it provides the child with an opportunity to experience that parent as safe, loving and available. And in that way, undoes sort of the lie that underlies all alienation, which is that the targeted parent is unsafe, unloving, and unavailable. So going back to in-the-office reunification therapy, right. if it's a stepping stone, like, yeah, we'll try the Band-Aid okay. on the heart attack, but then you better take us to surgery. You know, fine, because why go to surgery if the Band-Aid's going to work, right? And that's probably not a great example. <laughs> that was hilarious, though. I love that. <laughs> So it's always better to try a less invasive, you know, less extreme treatment first. So I'm not opposed to it in theory. The problem is most court orders don't say if it doesn't work within a certain amount of time, right. then this family shall go to, you know, get the, the real treatment. And so um, I just completed a survey. I wrote up the data published, uh, submitted for publication, and it's been accepted. So I can tell you, I did a survey of 120 therapists, licensed mental health professionals across the country, all of whom advertise on their websites that they provide in the office reunification therapy for kids of divorce. And I asked them, you know, what are your treatment goals? And how long does treatment last? And right. in what percentage of cases do you have joint sessions? And do you share the goals with the parents, et cetera, et cetera? And sadly, a lot of these therapists, and they're well-meaning, you know, they're doing the best they can, I believe. But sadly, they're holding on to these cases, sometimes for years, sometimes without ever having joint sessions. So they call it reunification therapy, but every session is the child alone saying, I'm not ready to see mommy yet with the alienator dad sitting in the waiting room, you oh, know, God. making sure the kid, you know, sticks to the script Matt, and they still call that reunification therapy. And that can go on for months and months and months and months. That Just you saying that made my eye twitch. Cause I mean, it's like, there's that, that's, that's still, there's no way that's going to work. Oh my God. Right. I mean, in the best of worlds with the most talented therapist, it's still incredibly hard because Let's say that the therapist is actually doing what needs to be done, which involves challenging the child's cognitive distortions. Right. And let's say the child starts to warm up to the targeted parent. The favorite parent can pretty easily sabotage it. Oh, yeah. I mean, think if a favorite parent can turn a child against a parent who they had a relationship with, they obviously can turn the, th the child against the therapist who they barely know. And so once the favorite parents gets a whiff that things are slipping out of their control, they can just, you know, schedule activities and cancel oh, yeah. appointments. Yeah. And, and eventually the kid comes in, you know, Dr. Smith doesn't understand me. And the whole thing blows up. No, that's a, that's a great point. I, I'm glad you said that though, because I've, I've heard a lot of people talk about, you know, reunification therapy and I didn't realize there was another side of it. So I'm glad you mentioned that and I'll have to, work that into my thing when I, when it comes up periodically, whenever we have shows and stuff, which this then leads to another question kind of associated with all this, but, but how do you explain to your kid what's going on? And is there an appropriate age or a way to, to, I mean, you kind of hit it when it's early, but is there ever a time where you can sit down and just basically say, Hey buddy, this is what's going on or this, is what's happened. Or is that, is there, never a t is there ever a time that that's appropriate? Well, I think it would, it would have to be triggered by the child saying something. But in general, 
I believe that everybody should speak from their own experience. So a parent should never, this is my opinion, say to a child, this is what's happening. It's, I believe this is what's happening. Um, because there is another side to it and it could be completely wrong, but it's con I think it's confusing for the child if somebody says, you know, uh, you know, the other parent's a bad person. You have to say, I believe, but I want to cl clear up. I don't even think that's okay to ever say to the child, I believe the other parent is a bad person. Right. So I, I don't, I, maybe, could you ask the question more specifically? Like, give me a scenario where you would think you would want to say to a child, here's what's going on. Well, like, okay. So I, I get a lot of people who, well, actually, you know what? I'll roll into this. This, this, this was another question that someone kind of was asking, was, uh, was asking me or wanted me to ask you. And basically, you know, you know, as children grow up and this, initially when I was asking questions, I was talking about with them being older, but let's just say you have a situation where you're dealing with an 11 year old, you know, 12, you know, that, that, that tweener type age, you know, not quite a tween or teen, sorry, tween, I guess that's what they are. Um, mm -hmm. you know, cause I, well, I experienced this myself where, you know, when the kids started doing, pushing, you know, setting their own boundaries and pushing things, I immediately went to that. It was the ex it's all because of the ex. Now, fortunately I had a therapist at the time and the kids had a therapist and both of them were able to say, Hey, look, a lot, Yes, there's an influence with the ex, but it's also the normal behavioral, you know, I mean, kids do it. I mean, so don't just automatically assume, assume that your beautiful little child who, you know, would look up at you with these, you know, wide eyes is now treating you like crap is just because of the ex. So oftentimes people, when they get in that situation, they want to basically say, this is what your mom's doing. And, and this is what are in my situation, right? Using that as an example. Um, what I, think would... I still need to be more specific. Like the child says, mommy says, you know, you should let me stay up, um, as late as I want. I mean, is that the kind of thing? And then you would be tempted to say, look, this is what's going on. Your mom's just setting you up to be mad at me. I, well, okay. Yeah. That's a, that's one part. I mean, Can it's that as an example? You okay. use that as so, an example. Cause that actually, okay. I, I've experienced that one too. <laughs> I, I don't think it's helpful to tell the other, to tell the child, you don't believe what you're saying. You don't really care about bedtime. Your mom's just making you or your dad, again, right. to be fair, yeah, yeah. be either parent. I, I believe in, in that scenario to say to the child, well, you know, what do you, what do you believe? Let's, let's, that's interesting. Thank you for asking me if you can have a later bedtime. I'm really glad that you're advocating for yourself and thinking about what works. How should we decide what bedtime is? What, how should we figure that out? And then you brainstorm with your child. How do you know, you know, how much vegetables to eat every day? How do you know, right. you know, if your child says, mom says, I don't need to wear a seatbelt. Yeah, you could say your mom's a jerk, but you also could say, oh, well, what do you think? How do people decide whether to wear seatbelts or not? Yeah. Almost everything can be an interesting conversation that you have with your child. Every interaction with your child, every interaction has to be where you are safe, loving, and available. Here's my favorite example recently. Okay. Imagine you have a little kid and the kid says to you, can I have ice cream for breakfast? You could say, that's ridiculous. Who told you? Did your dad tell you to ask me that? That's absurd. We don't eat ice cream for breakfast. Or you could say, oh boy, don't you wish ice cream were a healthy breakfast choice? Now they're both no. Neither of them are you getting out the bowl and ice cream scoop, right? But there's a way to talk to children where they always feel that you are safe, loving, and available, that you are respectful, even if what they're saying is, in your opinion, absurd or a product of the other parent. My kid would never ask me for ice cream for breakfast if, you know, the dad weren't doing it at the other house or the dad was putting my kid up to it. That's it. You still respond to your child in a way the child walks away thinking, you know, I feel, I feel loved. And, and it's not about that is a great example. I like it. And, and, and it dovetails, or not dovetails, but it goes exactly what you're talking about before. And as you were saying it, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of like, 
it's like you can feel the emotions of it. One of it just makes it tense and stressful. The other one makes it light and, and, and safe. And, and yeah, I, I had a, I had a, a, another kind of example of that where the kids wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't take showers. You know, I don't have to take a shower at mommy's house. We only do it, you know, you know, we don't have to take a shower every day. And the only, and the way I got around that, it was weird because the, the, the mom in my situation stopped, wasn't taking the kids to the doctor's appointment. So I was, so I got to take the girl, my girls to, um, uh, their, their, you know, annual appointment. And I was, and I felt like such an idiot because, you know, I was like sitting there with the doctor. I'm like, Oh, Hey doc. Um, so I had a question. How often should the kids take, you know, should take a bath or take a shower? And they looked at me like I was an idiot and said every day. I'm like, Every day, every day, or like, you know, maybe, you know, every other day. And they're like, no, they should do it every day. So once I had that, then whenever I was at home and the kids said, you know, I don't want to take a shower. I'm like, hey, you know, we talked to the doctor. They said, I didn't say your mom's a piece, you know, your mom's a monster. I just said, hey, you know, the doctor said you're supposed to do it every day. You're taking a shower. Just go do it. Let's knock it out. And after a while, basically, not for, or I guess establishing that routine, and then the kids calmed down and it just became, you know, no big deal. I actually got after a long time, it took a while. I mean, especially for the youngest one, they just did it, you know, and then it just started working. I mean, and, and, but anyways, that's just an example of how, I don't know, was that, was that the right way to do it? Did I do okay? Great example. I could, um, I can always tweak it. I can always finesse it a little bit. I mean, I think that, um, a, a good place to start is always to be empathic and interested. So I've sort of coined this term compassionate curiosity. Okay. And so before you go to problem solving, I think it makes sense to say like, Oh, well, what's going on? You're not, you're not feeling, you're not digging showers right now. You know, how come can you, you know, I'd like to understand more before you jump to something else. I mean, maybe there's a spider in the, in the shower that they're afraid of or like, you, you have to really start by being interested in their felt experience. And then, but let's say they don't, they're just like, well, mom doesn't make us. And you're like, then I think the compassion comes in with it. It can be hard sometimes when the rules are different in the different homes. And I think that can be confusing. So you want to start also by acknowledging that. And then, see, I'm inserting. I know, I'm thinking. Steps. I guess I could have worded it that way. I didn't quite say it that way when I had that conversation, but that was a better approach. <laughs> so then you can insert, how do you think we can resolve this? So I think, oh, yeah. this is you talking, I think showers are important every day and you're not so keen, you're not convinced that you need to take them as often. How should we, how should we resolve this? And just then here's the hardest part. You shut up. Oh, yeah. It's very hard because parents just talk too much. And then you let your kid come up with a solution. How, how should we? Because it's like you came let them to the get solution. Buy-in. Let's ask the doctor, right? That was your solution. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's get so, so that's better than I'm the boss, do it my way. And that's better than your mother's a jerk. <laughs> I think that though, to improve on what you did. Yeah, yeah. You you know, you start by being interested in what's going on, then you start by then you acknowledge that, you know, it can be challenging if the rules are different. Not you don't want to catastrophize. It is the worst thing in the world. Your mother and I should always agree on everything. No. Yeah. But it is a reality that it's confusing, and then you invite them to brainstorm with you how to resolve it. And one resolution might be ask the doctor. And then and let's say your kids came up with it like, oh, what an interesting idea. Are we in agreement that we'll do whatever the doctor says? Okay, cool. Who should ask the doctor? Would you like to do it or do you want me to do it? Awesome. Now you now you have, you know, a path to resolving it that feels very connected between you and your kid. That's uh yeah. It's it. Wow. That's, um, that's great advice. I've actually told other people and the way I approached it when the kids were really angry and it kind of like what you just, what you just said. And that's what I've told people. It's like, you know, whenever you're, whenever the relationship isn't going well with your kids, you're going to have to let them come and just, you know, boop, poke you in the eye and just 
basically sit there and take it and hear what they have to say. Let them communicate and feel that you will listen to them because that's the bridge to everything else. And if you try to, if you jump in and you start trying to say something, you are going to undermine yourself because they're just going to go, well, yeah, well, that's the way daddy always is. That's, you know, he always, you know, doesn't listen to me. He always thinks mom's bad, whatever. Um, I love the way you explain that. I may have to pull that out as a little sound bite because that was phenomenal. So thank you for saying that. Um, no, I have, a, I do find, no, go ahead. Good. Well, I was just going to say, I do find the more specific, the example, and this is how I do my coaching yeah. practice with people is, you know, there's sort of the theory, but then it's much easier to really explain it with very specific examples. Oh yeah. Cause every situation has its own nuances, right? I mean, that, that, that story we just talked about has 9,000 or 9 million different ways it could go. And then the advice, I mean, I think the overarching advice is, is spot on, but there would be some tweaks to it on that. So, I mean, yeah, I, I definitely, and I, I so on, on, as I pause moment, I would say is anybody who's struggling with this and needs an expert who really knows what they're doing, go to her website, go to Dr. Amy Baker's website and check out the coaching thing because, you know, uh, you, the problem is, is that you make mistakes and they all add up. You start going through this and you start making more mistakes. It makes it harder and harder to get out of, right? Um, I, I suppose, I, but on the positive, I, I think it is possible to turn things around. I mean, yeah. unless your child is severely alienated and they're not coming at all or they spend every minute in the, in the room on the phone with the other parent, Every moment with your child is a moment to behave in a safe, loving and available way. And that doesn't mean giving them what they want. You know, it yeah. means being interested in their experience. I mean, I do. I, I guess I could add. Um, I guess it's a reaction to the poke in the eye thing. I do want to be clear. It is important for the targeted parent to feel that they have integrity as a person. In other words, okay. if your kid comes up to you and starts like spitting at you or, you know, doing something that you feel sort of violates your integrity. Mm -hmm. It, I think, again, targeted parents get stuck either like I'm a doormat and I have to just take it or I have to put my foot down and my kid can't, you know, I have, I have an obligation as a parent to treat my child, to teach yeah. my child morals and manners. So again, I feel like I found this space where you can really try to do both, which is if your child comes at you, not to you, but at you, mm -hmm. you know, with something, some upset in a way that feels um, dis so disrespectful to you. You can say, I believe that the way to do it is to start again with compassion. And what you say to the child is, wow, you are really upset with me right now. So you start by acknowledging the child's upset. And then you say, I really want to understand what's going on. So you show that you care. And then you say in a very non-shaming way, you describe the behavior that the child's engaging in that's making it hard for you to be attentive to what they're saying. So you could say, let's say the child's spitting at you. You know, wow, you're really upset with me. And I totally want to understand what's going on. I can't really process it while you're spitting. Or it's very hard for me to hear because you're talking very loudly. So if your kid is screaming at you, you just mm -hmm. say, I can't really follow it because you're talking really loudly. And then you invite the child. Could you say it again without spitting? Could you say it again in a quieter voice? So you can't say, to, I don't believe in any name calling, disrespectful, rude. You know, you can't say to your child, you're being so rude to me. You say, wow, you're really upset. I totally want to get what's going on. I'm a little distracted because you're calling me names and cursing. I can't follow you. Could you please say it again without cursing? Oh, that's good. And I, that is the way that you have to, as a parent, um, have some self-respect, I think, yeah. you know, because parent targeted parents are constantly told, suck it up, eat shit, you know, suck it up, suck it up, suck it up. Yeah. And there is a lot of sucking it up that goes along with being a targeted parent. But there's some behaviors that just, you know, you can't let go unnoticed. But you don't want to call the child out in a way that makes the child feel 
let me back up. If you start by saying to the child, you're being really rude and I don't want to listen to you until you can talk nicely. If you start with the negative, yeah. the child feels that you care more about manners than you care about their suffering, right? When a child comes to you and they're angry, it's because they're suffering. So you have to start with the compassion. You are so upset. And then you invite the child to tell you in a way that doesn't violate your self-respect as a separate person. That's perfect. I, and it's so hard to do. I mean, it's so hard in the moment to, well, especially if you don't have any, if no one's giving you, like, if you've never seen this, this conversation or any of your work and you're just doing it on pure instinct, it's, it's almost impossible. I mean, you need some type of like, at least in a playbook in your own mind on how you're supposed to approach it. Um, I mean, geez, I wish I would have had this. I mean, my kids, I got a 21 year old, a 19 year old and a 15 year old. I've been doing through this for nine years. So, I mean, you know, I've made my mistakes nine years ago, you know, whatever. So, um, I'm very grateful that there's other, that there's stuff like that out there or what you have out there. So, and unfortunately we're down to the last minute. I do want to, uh, pull up if, if my button works right here is, uh, uh, Dr. Baker's website is amyjlbaker.com. Uh, list her books is, uh, so definitely check it out. Do you have a YouTube channel or anything or no? You know, people contact me and say they've, they, they've watched things on my channel, but it's not, I have no idea what that even means. I don't know. <laughs> I think there are YouTube videos out there of me from many years ago. Yeah. Um, so I really don't know. Okay. Not so the best way is just to go to your website, read your blog, and uh, um, if they need to reach out to you, there's ways to do that on there. Yeah, so, email, my phone number. You know, I just want to say that the reason why this is so hard is because we weren't raised this way. Yeah. Most people aren't raised with this level of sort of finesse to their parenting. Yeah. And, you know, I did get my background in attachment theory. You know, that's really where I come from is from an attachment orientation. And so I sort of combined that with my understanding of the mechanics of alienation. But most people don't have to parent this way. I think it would be good if everybody did. The world would be a better place. But most of us weren't. So we don't intuitively have this in our, we don't have it in our repertoire of parenting strategies. So that's why, you know, we, you know, targeted parents struggle. Yeah. And I think the last part you mentioned, I think the, the crazy, or at least from my opinion out of this, is I've actually become a better parent as a result of this experience. If I would have continued on the same way, it, I mean, it would have worked. I mean, if it would have been a normal relationship, I would have parented the way my parents did. But it's like, I, the gift out of this is, is once you get your kids back, is that you get to parent, you, you learn to parent in a much more effective, loving way. Yep. Yep. You don't have to be an A++ parent unless you're a targeted parent. And yeah. then you do. But yeah. then you're right. The gift is you're an A++ parent, which is a pretty cool thing. All right. On that, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. And uh, on that, thank you guys for hanging out. I appreciate uh, it. Sorry for the delays on it. Uh, definitely check out the replay. And I apologize to everyone else who was asking questions. We didn't get to it. We had a lot to go through. Have a great rest of your day, and I'll be back here tomorrow. <laughs>